Thank you for listening to our Emmanuel Baptist Church podcast sermon series by Pastor Sean Cole. Emmanuel exists to display God's glory, declare God's gospel, and to disciple for God's great commission. If you have any questions about this message or would like more information about our church, you can visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. You, I want to invite to open to Exodus chapter 34. Exodus chapter 34. <laughs> They're excited to go. Some of you want to go with them, but you're too old. So you have to stay here and listen to me. All right. <laughs> you know, my wife and my son are really big into astronomy. They like to get the telescope out and look at the stars and, and see the planets. I'm not that big into it as they are, but um, I did a little research. And last June, the planet Jupiter, which is the largest planet in our solar system next to the, the sun, which is really a star, Last June, Jupiter was the brightest it's been in a long time. Normally, Jupiter's not that bright because it's so far away. What's the brightest star in the sky, or the brightest planet, is Venus because it's closer. But last June, somehow the Earth and Jupiter aligned to where it was so bright that through the whole month of June, you could see Jupiter at its brightest, the largest planet in our solar system shining the brightest, Jupiter. Now, does anybody know what the brightest star is besides the sun in our solar system? It's Sirius, also known as the dog star. Does anybody know what Sirius means? And I'm really serious about this. Does anybody know what Sirius means? That's not how you spell it. It's a Greek word. It means glowing, glowing in the Greek language. Now, when you go out and look up at the night sky with the naked eye, in last June, you could see Jupiter shining brightly. You can see Sirius shining brightly. Now, Dawn has always wanted to go to the North Pole and see the Aurora Borealis, the northern lights. Anybody want to go see the northern lights? Have you ever seen the northern lights? It's a, it's a weird phenomenon. Um, I don't know how you know what's, what causes the aurora borealis, but they're, they're caused by... Now, don't ask me to get into all the science of this, but I'll read it to make sure I'm, I'm reading the right thing. Magnetic storm and solar winds cause various colors of lights that send glowing arcs into the sky. The aurora borealis. You've got the sun shining brightly. You've got Jupiter, the largest planet, shining brightly. You got Sirius, the brightest star, shining brightly. You got the aurora borealis that gives off this weird type of, of incandescent type of glow. And so you're like, why are you talking about the brightness of these planets and stars and natural phenomena? Because here's the thing. Today we see a very interesting phenomenon. Moses shines. He glows. He radiates bright light from his face, and it freaks out the Israelites. So that's what we're going to look at this morning. Now, if you remember from last week, and you have to excuse me for just a moment. I hate to blow my nose on the microphone, but you got to do what you got to do. Last week, we saw Moses make the most profound request you could ever think of. What did Moses ask the Lord? He said, show me your glory. 
That's a big request. Show me your glory. And God says, Moses, you can't handle the truth. You can't handle the glory. I'm going to put you in the cleft of the rock. I'm going to hide you there, and I'm going to pass by, and you'll see my backside glory, but you can't see my face and live. And if you remember, God passes by Moses and announces to Moses his name. And if you remember last week, the Lord is gracious and merciful and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And what does Moses do? He quickly bows down to the earth and worships the living God after having seen the backside glory of the Lord. Now Moses is still up on the mountain in Exodus chapter 34. And in verses 10 through 28, he's receiving some more rules, some more laws. And if you remember, God told him to refashion the Ten Commandments because he shattered the first ones. And so we're going to pick up at the end of chapter 34 where Moses finally comes down the mountain for the last time. I think if you count, it's been like four times he's been up and down, up and down, up and down. It's finally the last time he finally comes down. So let's pick up in Exodus chapter 34, starting in verse 29. Exodus 34, 29. When Moses came down from the mountain, Mount Sinai, with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand. As he came down from the mountain, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses, and behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. But Moses called to them, and Aaron and all the leaders of the congregation returned to him, and Moses talked with them. Afterward, all the people of Israel came near And he commanded them all that the Lord had spoken with him in Mount Sinai. And when Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil over his face. Whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would remove the veil until he came out. And when he came out and told the people of Israel what he was commanded, the people of Israel would see the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face was shining, and Moses would put the veil over his face again until he went in to speak with him. So Moses has been in the manifest presence of God up on the mountain. Now, Moses had just really seen the backside glory of God, and so he comes down the mountain. He's carrying the new Ten Commandments on tablets, and Moses doesn't know that his face is shining. Now, this is more than just his face is kind of glowing Literally, if you want to know the original language here, it really, it's the word horns. Sometimes if you look at old, old paintings of Moses, sometimes they have Moses with horns. And you're like, why does Moses have horns in these old paintings? It really meant that it wasn't just that he was glowing, but that like spikes of light were illuminating off of his face. Like beams of light came flying off of his face. Now that's a pretty amazing thing that happens. And, and so the people are kind of freaking out. If you look there in verse 30, when he comes down the mountain, Aaron and the people in Israel saw Moses' face, and they were afraid. It's like when you shine the headlights on a cat in the dark. What does the cat do? It scurries or a rabbit. It's, it's afraid because it's, it's the bright light. These people were afraid. And think about Moses' face shining forth the glory of the Lord. It's, it's just a fraction of God's glory. And the people were so amazed and they were afraid. And it reminds us of something. Just the power of God's glory. 
even just a fraction coming off of Moses' face of God's absolute glory. God is glorious. God is powerful. God is majestic. He is the Lord. And then in verse 32, something very significant happens. Moses gathers all the people together. All the people of Israel came near, and he commanded them all that the Lord had spoken with him in Mount Sinai. Now, you may say, what does that include? Everything from chapters 25 through chapters 31. The instructions on building the tabernacle. Because remember, Moses hasn't really had time to tell the people anything because when he came down the first time, he, he smashed the Ten Commandments and the people were partying and then they had to drink the gold powder and, and all the stuff that we've seen, the discipline. And so now Moses is finally saying, listen, this is the main reason I came down in the first place was to tell you what God has told me up on the mountain. So he gathers everybody there together and notice what he says. He says he commands them all that the Lord gave him with his face uncovered. He's commanding them the law with the full glory of God shining from his face. If you see there in verse 33, when Moses had finished speaking with them, he put the veil over his face. While he was commanding them, while he was preaching to them, while he was instructing them, the the glow, the shining, the brightness was coming off of his face. In other words, he was speaking with the very authority of the Lord. And one thing we need to know is that this was just temporary. It was a temporary experience for Moses. The glory eventually faded from his face. So this is a very specific instance in the Old Testament. One man, Moses, gets to see the backside glory of God. One man, Moses, It's to radiate the glory of God. One man, Moses, receives the law on stone tablets and has this unique encounter with the living God. And he was delivering the law on tablets of stone, the Ten Commandments. And so the glory of God in the Old Testament was wrapped up in the giving of the law, the giving of the Ten Commandments, instructions on the building of the tabernacle. And so when you come to the New Testament, you realize that the Old Covenant law, the Old Covenant tabernacle, all the things that happened to Moses, that too was temporary. It came to an end. It was fulfilled in Christ. Now, what I really love about the Bible is when a New Testament writer gives you direct commentary and explanation on what's going on. Paul does that for us. Paul, in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, explains to us what was going on here. So we're going to jump out of Exodus this morning and spend time seeing how Paul describes this event. I've read it for you. You know what happened. Moses comes down. He's glowing. He's shining. He puts a veil over his face. Let's see how Paul applies, interprets, explains, fills in the gaps for. So if you would, turn to 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 3. And we're going to look at verses 7 through 18 where Paul describes this event that we just saw in Exodus. Make sure everybody gets there. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. All right, let's start with verse 7. 
Now, if the ministry of death carved in letters on stone came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpassed it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold. Not like Moses who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. Yet to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed in the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Now, Paul fills in the gaps for us. He shows us some major differences between the old covenant glory, the old covenant tablets of stone that were coming to an end, versus what we have in the new covenant. So what I want us to do this morning is, from this passage of Scripture from Paul, I want us to see five truths about our salvation, really. Five truths about what the glory of the Lord is in the new covenant. Because Paul's making a, a comparison, greater, lesser to greater. If it was great in the Old Testament, that glory, and Moses had to put a veil over his face, just think how much greater it is now through the power of the Holy Spirit and the gospel and what we have in Jesus. So let's look at these five truths. And here's truth number one. The old covenant law was only temporary and external, while the new covenant gospel is permanent and internal. Let me repeat that. The old covenant law was temporary, came to an end. It was external on tablets of stone. The new covenant gospel is permanent, and it's internal. So let's just see what's going on here. Paul calls that old covenant, look at verse 7, a ministry of death. A ministry of death carved on letters of stone. In verse 9, he calls it the ministry of condemnation. A ministry of death and a ministry of condemnation. And he says it was coming to an end. It came to an end. It wasn't permanent. It wasn't lasting. It was just temporary. So what Paul is doing here is he's making a distinction between law and gospel. Law and gospel. Or if you want to say the old covenant, what we were supposed to do versus the new covenant, what Christ has done for us. So it's the old covenant law was a ministry of condemnation. Because here's what the law does. The law tells you to obey. The law gives you the rules. The law tells you you better obey the Ten Commandments with 100% perfection 100% of the time. And if you don't do that, you're under condemnation. The law gives you no internal power to obey. 
It comes to you externally on tablets. It tells you what you do. And if you don't do it, you are crushed underneath the weight of it. The law does not give you any inward power with which to change your life. It only tells you what to do, and you and I can't do it, so we're crushed under its weight. As John Calvin said, the law is to show us the disease in such a way to show us at the same time no hope of cure. The law leaves us to ourselves. It condemns us to death. The law is a ministry of condemnation. It's a ministry of death. You and I can't keep the Ten Commandments. Even if we tried to, we can't. The gospel, on the other hand, is the good news of what Jesus has done for us in his death, his burial, and his resurrection. The gospel's internal. It's a work that the Holy Spirit does in us to change us, to transform us, to forgive us, to cleanse us. And it's lasting, not temporary. Why is it lasting? Because Jesus died once for all on the cross and he rose again and he's alive today and he's coming back. It's a, it's a permanent salvation. It's a complete forgiveness and it, it gives us hope. The old covenant law crushed us. The new covenant gospel saves us and empowers us and gives us grace upon grace. And God even promised this back in the Old Testament. The Old Testament, God promised what he would do in the new covenant. You find this in Jeremiah chapter 31, 31 through 34, the new covenant promise. What, is, what did God promise in the Old Testament? Listen to the promise of God. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. I'm making a new covenant, not like the one I made with them at Sinai. This is going to be a new covenant. The covenant of Sinai was external. It came on stone. It had no power from within to save them. It only showed them what they were supposed to do when they broke the law royally. What's this new covenant going to do? Verse 33. For this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Moses brought those tablets of stone down, carved with the very hand of God, and told Israel, do this and live. Now, none of us can obey the law. The law just shows us that we're sinful. The gospel comes and says the Holy Spirit's going to do an internal work where he's going to do something in our hearts. He's going to change us from the inside. It's going to be permanent. So the old covenant glory came to an end when Christ showed up. Christ fulfilled all of the types and shadows in the Old Testament, the tabernacle, the law. Everything is fulfilled in Christ. And in the new covenant, he brings an internal, lasting change that brings about complete forgiveness of sin as opposed to that old covenant glory. Now, Paul doesn't downplay the old covenant glory. He says there's still glory in that old covenant because Moses was shining forth. But it was temporary. It was external. 
It wasn't permanent. It wasn't internal. So here's truth number two. In the gospel, God declares us not guilty on account of Christ. In the gospel, God declares us not guilty on account of Christ. Look at verse 9. For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, that's the old covenant, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. The ministry of righteousness. There's a wonderful truth in the Bible that you and I need to grab a hold of, and it's this. When you personally trust Jesus for salvation, every single one of your sins, past, present, and future, is credited to him, and you bear those sins no more. It makes you not guilty before God because your sins have been forgiven. Peter says it this way in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but being made alive in the Spirit. Jesus died, the righteous, so you and I, the unrighteous, could be righteous. But there's also something greater that happens in just our sins being forgiven. We often just go halfway. When you trust Christ for salvation, your sins, past, present, and future, are taken to Christ, and he takes your sins. But guess what happens? There's something else that happens. His perfect righteousness, his perfect life of obedience is credited back to you, is given to you as a gift. And guess what happens? God the Father can look down upon your life, and he can say, I don't see a sinner anymore. I see Jesus, and I can declare you not guilty on account of Christ. I can declare you righteous. Now, you didn't produce this righteousness. It's not something you mustered up. It's not something you came up with. It came from outside of you as a gift of grace. It's from Jesus himself. Paul says in Romans chapter 4, 4 through 5, now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. Okay, when you go to work, you get a paycheck, right? Or at least you hope you do, because you're working for a living. That's not the way salvation works, Paul says. To the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. You're not saved by working for your salvation. You're saved by trusting in Jesus and what he did. Romans 5.1, therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. It's called justification by faith alone. We have a right standing with God. In 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake he made him, that's God made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Never lose sight of the fact that if you're a Christian, your sins, past, present, and future, have been taken out of your account and all of Christ's righteousness has been put into your account so that you stand forever in a permanent position of being not guilty before God. Truth number three. The Holy Spirit supernaturally 
removes the quote-unquote veil of unbelief and grants us new life in Christ. The Holy Spirit supernaturally removes the veil of unbelief and grants us new life in Christ. Now, look at verse 14. But their minds were hardened. Their minds were hardened. That generation of Israelites. Now, here's the sad thing. We're not going to go into the book of Numbers, but you'll find out later on that this generation of Israelites who saw the Red Sea, who saw the glory of God on the tabernacle, it came time for them to go in to take the land, the promised land. Remember they sent the spies in, and the spies came back and said, we can't do this. And so God punished that generation because of their hardness of heart, and they had to wander for 40 years in the wilderness, and they died in the desert, never getting to enter into the promised land. That generation had a hard heart. They were hardened. And then Paul says in his day, for to this day, When they, the Jewish people, read the Old Covenant, the same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. Now, Paul's talking about the Jewish people in his day who have a veil over their hearts to not see the gospel, not to see the Messiah. But let me just speak about the condition of every single person today without Jesus. Paul says there's a veil that lies over your heart. It's a heart issue as to why people don't come to faith in Christ. It's not an intellectual issue. A lot of people have information about who Jesus is. A lot of people know the facts about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. A lot of people have read their Bibles. That's not the issue. It's not for lack of information or for intellectual knowledge. It's a hardness of heart. It's a blindness. It's a spiritual deadness. Now, I want you just to go over one chapter and see what Paul continues to say about this. So go into chapter 4 for just a moment and look at verse 3 and 4. Chapter 4, verse 3 and 4, this is almost in his same flow of thought. He says, even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. Why? In their case, the God of this world, that's Satan, has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Satan has put a blinder over every single lost person to keep them from seeing the glory of God. And if people have spiritual blinders on and people have dark, hardened hearts, what needs to happen? Something has to happen to your heart in order for you to see Christ. And so in the Old Testament, God promised what he would do in Ezekiel 36, 26 through 27. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Every single person is born with a heart of stone. A dead, stony, lifeless heart in rebellion to God. And God needs to take that heart out. God needs to take those blinders off your eyes. You can't take the blinders off your eyes. You can't give yourself a new heart. You can't make yourself alive. The veil has to be removed, that veil of unbelief, and only God can do that. You can't make yourself alive. Paul says in Ephesians 2, 4 through 5, this was read earlier, that God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead 
not sick, but dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you've been saved. God has to make you alive when you're dead. Now, we have an example of this in the Bible with Lydia. Paul in Philippians goes down to the river. Philippi sees a bunch of women, um, Jewish and Gentile women that are kind of worshipers of God in the sense that they were kind of Judy, you know, proselytes to Judaism. Acts 16, 14. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple gold, goods, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. You need to understand something. Your sin is so pervasive, so corruptive, you are spiritually dead in bondage to sin with blinders on your eyes without Jesus Christ. This veil lies over your heart that only a supernatural work of God's grace can take care of it. You can't do it. Only God can supernaturally, sovereignly overcome your deadness, your blindness, your hardness of heart. So let's just recap for a moment. That old covenant was temporary. It only brought condemnation. It was only ministered through one man, Moses, who was a sinner himself. And you could never obey enough to be righteous with the law, to be accepted by God. Yet in the new covenant, in the gospel of Christ, the Holy Spirit does this work of taking the veil off of our eyes, of making us alive with Christ, of writing the law in our hearts, of forgiving us completely, declaring us not guilty before the Father, all these wonderful things. And so from first to last, God has sovereignly saved you by grace alone. So you can't work for your salvation. You can't merit your salvation. You are up to the mercy of God to save you by grace alone. But once you're saved by grace, are you supposed to be a Christian and sit on a bump like, be like a bump on a log and not do anything? You're supposed to grow. You're supposed to grow to be more like Jesus. And so here's truth number four. The more, and this is an important, this is something I live by. The more you look at Jesus, the more you begin to look like Jesus. The more you look at Jesus, the more you begin to look like Jesus. Notice what Paul says there in verse 18. We all, we all, it's very important he says we all there. Not just some super Christians, not just for some people that have arrived Not just Moses, but it's true for you. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, this is true of you. What's the truth? What's the truth to your identity in Christ? Paul says, we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord. Beholding. Now, some of your translations may we look as in a mirror. That's really what the word means, to gaze into a mirror. Now, hopefully this morning you looked at yourself in the mirror. And some of you woke up and said, wow, that's a scary sight when I look at myself. But think about all the time you spend before a mirror. I've got to look good so I, when I go out in public, I don't look like I was hit by a freight train. You know, you're, you're like, I've got to look good. Narcissus in Greek mythology, remember Narcissus? He's a character in Greek mythology. He spent all day long looking at his reflection in a pool. He was so enamored with himself all, all day. I just want to look at myself. That's what narcissism is. You look at yourself all day long as opposed to looking at others. But what Paul's saying here, the image is this. The more you look 
at Jesus, the more you begin to look like Jesus. So you've got to spend time reflecting him, mirroring him, being like him. Psalm 34, 5 says, those who look to him are radiant and their faces shall never be ashamed. Those who look to him are radiant, like Moses. You'll never be put to shame. Now, the Spirit is the one who does this transformation. Because notice what it says there in verse 18. We all, every single one of us that's a believer, not just some super class of super Christians, you're beholding the glory of the Lord. As you're looking at Jesus, as you're looking at his glory, as you're looking at him, you're being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. This comes from the Lord, who's the Spirit. So what's the Holy Spirit doing? He is transforming you. You're being transformed. It's where we get the word metamorphosis. You're undergoing a metamorphosis. A metamorphosis into what? To look more like Jesus. And this, this verb, beholding, it's not just like a one-time action where I just I kind of took a casual glance at Jesus. No, it's ongoing with your life. You're looking at Jesus. You're gazing at Jesus. You're beholding the glory of the Lord. And as you continually behold the glory of the Lord, the Holy Spirit's working in you to look more like Jesus. So here's the point. The more you look at Jesus, the more you look like Jesus. And this has been God's plan from you from the very beginning. Before the foundation of the world, God's plan for you is to look like Jesus. Romans 8, 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. God's plan for you from the very beginning was that you would be predestined to look like Jesus, to be conformed to the image of Jesus, to be more like Jesus. John Owen says this, one of the greatest privileges and advancements of believers, both in this world and into eternity, consist in their beholding the glory of Christ. Do you believe that? That your greatest privilege in this life and in the next is to behold, to see, to experience the glory of Christ. Now, what does it mean to look at Christ? Does it mean that we look up in heaven and see Jesus walking around up there? What does it mean to behold the glory of the Lord? Well, it means that you open your Bible. And if you want to see Jesus in action, read your Bible. Pray to the Lord come to a worship service like this, even in the Lord's Supper. When we take the Lord's Supper, it's a picture of Christ. It, it takes time. It takes readjusting your priorities. But if you're going to behold the glory of Jesus, you may need to reorient your priorities or make some adjustments in your life to spend the time necessary to look at Jesus. Because I will say this, if you don't look at Jesus, you will not look like Jesus. If you continue looking at Jesus, the more and more you will look like Jesus you will reflect his glory. Jesus says in John 15, 5, I am the vine, you're the branches. Whoever abides in me, and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me, you can do nothing. You've got to abide with Jesus. You've got to spend time with Jesus. Ephesians 4, 23 through 24, we need to be renewed in the spirit of your minds to put off the or to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. You're being renewed. 
And then one of my favorite passages of Scripture, Hebrews 12, 2, looking to Jesus or fixing your eyes on Jesus, beholding Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despised the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Now notice what Paul says there is to one degree of glory to another, which means some of us are going to grow at different rates. It's not one size fits all. There's going to be different growth patterns among believers in how God does that. But here's the point. The more you look at Jesus, the more you will look like Jesus. Now there's one final truth. It's not in this passage of Scripture, but it's a truth that we need to know. Truth number five. One day we will see the full glory of Jesus face to face. One day, we will see the full glory of Jesus face to face. Now, Moses had a unique experience, did he not? Nobody else ever got to see the backside of God's glory, and nobody else had the shining, radiating face. But Paul says right now we're being transformed. We're in the process of reflecting the glory of Christ. Now, we can't see Jesus physically, can we? we? We behold him by reading our Bibles, through prayer, through worship, through spending time with other believers. We behold the Lord through faith, not by sight, right? Has anybody, anybody here seen Jesus? If you have, come talk to me after the service. We walk by faith, not by sight. But one day our faith will be sight. 1 Corinthians 13, 12. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. There's that mirror analogy. Right now you're looking through a mirror d- dimly. It's kind of like when you get out of the shower and there's the fog. You kind of have to you know, squeegee it or take a towel. And, or like when you, you're out there and it's a cold morning and you have to use defrost and you can barely see. You can kind of see, but you really can't. That's the way it is right now. We can kind of see Jesus. We can get glimpses of his glory. We can read the Bible. We can pray. We walk by faith, not by sight. But Paul says one day we will see him face to face. 1 John 3, 2. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. That's a glorious truth. To see Jesus as he is. Moses couldn't see the Father as he is, but one day we will all see Jesus as he is. And so what should that do in your hearts? Look at verse 12 back in our text here in 2 Corinthians. Since we have such a hope, we have a hope. Now, what's the hope? Well, the hope is that we're not bound to the old covenant where we have to try to obey the law to earn our salvation. We have the hope of complete forgiveness of sins. We have a hope of this new life in Christ. We have a hope of forgiveness. We have a hope that the the Holy Spirit has come, done this work in, in our hearts. And so because we have this hope, what does Paul say? We are very bold. Well, bold to do what? 
we're very bold to approach the very throne of grace with confidence. We are very bold to go directly to God. We're very bold to seek that transformation from the Lord. We are very bold to go to God like Moses and say the same thing Moses said. Please show me your glory. We can ask that. Now, we can't ask it in the way that Moses said, where it was the full naked eye glory of God, but we can go to God and say, please show me your glory. And what does God say to us? You want to see my full glory? Look at Jesus. He's my full glory. John 1.14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. That's Jesus. We have seen his glory, glory, as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, why does he repeat glory? Glory, glory. It's repeated there. If you want to see God's glory, look at Jesus. If you want to experience God's glory, spend time with Jesus. If you want the majesty of God's glory... Pray to Jesus. If you want to see God's glory in action, read your Bible and study about Jesus. In other words, it all comes back to Jesus. There's a boldness here, Paul says, and down there in verse 17, where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. There's a freedom and there's a boldness that comes in being a child of God where you can directly access your Father through Jesus in the power of the Holy Spirit to experience the glory of God. And yes, it's through a glass dimly right now, but it's wonderful. One day it'll be glorious when we see Jesus face to face. So what should we do? Live in that freedom. Come boldly before Jesus. Rejoice that the Holy Spirit is transforming you to be like him. Get excited that your sins are forgiven. And have a glorious hope that one day, no matter what I'm going through, I'm going to see Jesus face to face. That gives me hope. That gives me freedom. That gives me boldness to know that I'm seeing through a glass dimly right now. But one day, I will see his face. You know, the moon gives off light, not of its own, because it reflects the sun, right? The moon is just a reflector. It reflects the sun. The sun's the source of light. Have you thought about your Christian life? You're not the source of light. Jesus is. Jesus is the sun. Jesus is the source of light. Jesus is the light of the world. What's our job? Like the moon. Reflect the sun. Not the S-U-N, but the S-O-N. Reflect the sun. Be like Moses to a watching world. As you have spent time with Jesus and as you've spent time beholding the glory of the Lord, as you spent time in prayer, and as you walk out your doors and you face a hostile world, would you be like Moses where the glory of God just exudes off of you, so much so that some people may get freaked out, but they see Jesus in you. They see the Lord of glory in your life. You're reflecting the glory of the Lord. Because you talk about Jesus, you worship Jesus, 
You reorient your entire life around Jesus. You give glory to Jesus. And here's, here's, this should be your life verse. 1 Corinthians 10.31. So whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. May that be our prayer this week. Let me ask you to bow your heads this morning. pray if there's anybody here today that still has the veil of unbelief on their eyes. They may have walked into this place for whatever reason and they have not yet trusted Christ for salvation. They know deep in their hearts that they're still sinful and separated from you. Lord, would today be the day that Holy Spirit, you do that work of taking those blinders off their eyes, doing a deep work in their hearts where they would cry out to Jesus to repent of their sins and to place all of their trust in him. Lord, for many of us in this room, we want to be transformed, to look more like you. We want to undergo this metamorphosis to be more like Jesus. And so, Holy Spirit, we ask that you continue to do that work in our hearts and help us to carve out the time to be able to behold the glory of Jesus, be able to, to look at you, Jesus, to spend time with you, to, to truly seek your face. Lord, forgive us for the times that we are so busy with other things, maybe good things. Lord, would it be awesome? Would it be a powerful testimony to a lost and dying world for believers from Emmanuel Baptist Church this week to walk out into the world and be reflectors of the one true God? And people would look at our lives and they would be, what in the world is going on? Because those are Jesus people. They talk about Jesus, they live for Jesus, they glorify Jesus, they, they look like Jesus, they act like Jesus. Those are people that are like Jesus. Lord, let that be our prayer this week, that we would behold the glory of the Lord so that we would look like Jesus to a watching world that desperately needs to know who Christ is. Let our light shine this week with the hope of the gospel to a world that is hopeless. All for your glory, Lord. And it's in your name that we pray these things. Amen.